On 26 October 2020, the BJP imposed another order upon Jammu and Kashmir. This time, annulling the region's hard-won land laws that had ended decades of tyranny and slavery of the powerful landlords under the rule of autocratic Dogra Hindus. The day that the BJP chose to impose this law is also symbolic. On 26th October in 1947, the last Dogra ruler of Jammu and Kashmir, Hari Singh, had signed a conditional accession to the Indian Union. As the BJP again abrogated yet another protectionist law that had benefited Jammu and Kashmir's public that has been battered by prolonged conflict and economic disadvantages, as such the anxiety and resentment in both the Jammu division and the Kashmir valley is understandable. The government on its part had justified the repealing of the protectionist laws that it described as ambiguous, redundant and regressive was required for modern economic needs. Observers however have called out the government's lies. In a series of articles published on the Kashmirwala, senior journalist Muzammil Jalil has analyzed the ramifications of the latest impositions as well as a point by point response to the government's statement on the matter. These explainers are available on www.thekashmirwala.com. I am curious to know if the current land laws are reminiscent of the land usage system under the Dogra rule and if New Delhi is turning the clock back to take Kashmir to the Dogra times by imposing these land laws. I am Sarvat Jawed, your host, and in today's podcast I have with me Dr. Suhail Rahman, who is a lecturer in the Department of Higher Education in Handwara. Dr Suhail has a doctorate in agrarian history of Jammu and Kashmir received from the Aligarh Muslim University. Hello and welcome to our podcast Dr Suhail. Hello and thank you Ms Sarvajawid for having me. So Dr Suhail how do you see the land laws imposed by New Delhi in a historical context? Uh, well uh, before one tries to figure out the purpose of the recently enacted these uh, land laws Uh, it's important to have an understanding of our history, uh, even if that uh, understanding is a sketchy one. Uh, you know, from a historical perspective, the laws that have been replaced by new laws now were introduced for specific purposes. Uh, for instance, uh, the laws that formed the core of the land to the tiller project were introduced by drawing upon the Naya Kashmir Manifesto that was drafted and published by the National Conference in 1944. Uh, on the one hand you see it was a document that visualized a democratic and a just society for the people who had been impoverished uh, due to centuries of uh, you know misrule and misgovernment uh, on the other hand it was a political tool to regain the fall, falling popularity of national conference among the masses Uh, from 1948 onwards, when the National Conference government passed legislations to overturn the pre-1947 situation, it led to the socio-economic empowerment of people. It was due to the uh, Big Landed Estates Abolition Act that was passed in 1950 that surplus lands were confiscated from nearly 400 big and you know thousands of petty landlords and redistributing among the actual tillers of the soil that's those who had been cultivating those lands for generations the reforms these uh, agrarian reforms led to an important shift in property relations so by extension it also meant political empowerment <clears throat> so the reforms gradually decreased the dependence of locals on outside aid and you know helped them build an economy where people could fulfill their needs on their own so when we apply this logic to the current circumstances it follows that these objectives were reversed 
you know, are being reversed. And on the other hand, uh, like the new laws would snatch from the people their means of production and make them wholly or at least, uh, you know, significantly dependent on the outside assistance. There may be some development in the private sector, no doubt, like in businesses or in the industrial sector, but that will happen at the cost of the lives of locals. So in time, this small and big indigenous businesses or hospitality sector, maybe even educational sector, uh, may become subservient to the non-domicile elements. On the other hand, when <clears throat> the people who would settle here or establish their businesses would be pro-BJP, quite expectedly, so the BJP will be able to create a vote bank here and elsewhere. Uh, thus, by the virtue of the lands that will be made over to non-domicile individuals or corporations, a symbiotic relationship uh, you know, between them and the government will emerge in time. So the Sangh Parivar will keep on playing the Kashmir card as it always has uh, to mask its failures elsewhere. For both <coughs> these, this Sangh Parivar as well as those who will be settled here, it will be a win-win scenario. So in the process, it is the hereditary residents of the state who are going to lose in like every possible manner. What was the system for usage of land under the Dogras? See, um, during the Dogra period, uh, over 90% of the population practiced agriculture. The rest of the population depended on petty businesses or handicrafts or government employment, etc. So even, uh, even the artisan classes depended on land in various ways. Yeah, because Kashmir was a subsistence economy. This means that the people uh, were able to produce food f to cater to their daily needs. But that was it. The taxes were very high, sometimes as high as 70% of the total produce. So they were not left with any reserves. And <clears throat> this this was the reason that made them very vulnerable to natural calamities, uh, such as, you know, famines, floods, earthquakes, etc. So only uh, a small percentage of the population could produce commercial crops. However, until the late 19th century, the state held monopoly over sale and purchase of rice that was the staple food of people. It was only after that, after the British intervention, that uh, more commercial crops were grown and that uh, augmented the income of the people. So uh, when we talk about the property relations, land was held by the state and the landlords who were granted those lands by the state. So peasants, they simply worked as tenants. Well, some of them had, uh, you know, hereditary occupancy rights, which means that they had been cultivating them for generations, even if they did not have ownership rights. So uh, in that scenario, the state or the landlords usually let them continue cultivating those lands. Their rights were not, uh, you know, like encroached upon. Uh, so a large section of peasants were tenants at will, which means they could be evicted easily by the landlords whenever they wanted. So there were others also who worked as sharecroppers. So as far as the <coughs> availability of land is concerned, uh, during the early Dogra period, land was available in abundance and therefore it was an affordable asset. So we have a lot of references, primarily from the uh, European sources, that a lot of cultivable land was actually laying uncultivated. Uh, but this situation changed by the 1890s. A lot of people had been brought in from Punjab uh, and had been given these lands for cultivation. They were granted large chunks of land in the state and not just in the valley. Okay, It was the entire state. So as a result of this, cultivable land turned scarce over time. So industrial sector was underdeveloped, so it did not occupy much land, but forests and wastelands were still abundant. So when arable land or cultivable land turned scarce, the government introduced new laws. 
these laws reserved uh, sorry this the state uh, reserved itself the sole right on foresters as well as the forest products such as timber or medicinal plants or uh, other things that could be procured from the foresters and similarly no one was allowed to occupy wastelands except with the permission of the state uh, well <clears throat> for that purpose uh, a proper system was developed wherein uh, you know people willing to cultivate wasteland were required to submit applications and then these lands were granted to them dr sohil how did that impact kashmiris uh, okay so uh, as agriculturalists uh, people were affected in various ways so uh, there were not many alternative avenues of income so agriculture was the mainstay of the economy uh, the shawl industry for instance which provided employment to a large number of people uh, it it declined uh, during 1870s Uh, so even those people who had been associated uh, with the, with the shawl industry before they now also turned to agriculture uh, therefore you know if, even if people uh, even if people were not willing to work on land they had to work on land you know they, there was this compulsion so <clears throat> because of this uh, the pressure on land increased over time especially you know this pressure was noticeable by 1890s Uh, the state had set aside lands which were known as khalsa here the state managed them uh, through its, its officials uh, through its bureaucracy but much of the cultivable land was parceled out to hundreds of landlords who would also get those lands cultivated by the common peasantry so <clears throat> you know these landlords were known by different designations such as jagirdars chakdars or mafidars or mukarriridars and then uh, there were certain jagirs which were occupied by the royal family so these jagirdars <coughs> uh, these were granted superior rights over land but they often misused their authority by extracting illegal taxes from the peasants evicting them from their lands and calling them up for forced labor you know what we usually call begar so you know uh, there were a few haves and hundreds of thousands of have nots who labored every single day to earn a livelihood you know for them and for their families but uh, when we come to the early 20th century uh, there were certain groups or certain individuals influential muslims uh, to be specific uh, who began demanding a change in the state's policies however the government rarely paid heed to such demands but uh, the pressure uh, that mounted on the state in the 1920s and early 1930s because of this uh, the launching of the resistance movement the state gave in so it enacted certain laws that benefited the agriculture population uh, so uh, <clears throat> by 1940s uh, nearly 90% of the cultivable land in the valley uh, had been brought under cultivation yet uh, there was still uh, a small section of the peasant classes who had been granted property rights over land but the majority of uh, peasants the majority of people continue to be at the mercy of the state and the landlords okay that's very interesting how has land been used historically to disempower kashmiris uh, as i already mentioned um, majority of people depended on land for their livelihood for their income Uh, so when we analyze the nature of the dogra state uh, we see that the dogra state behaved like a typical semi feudal medieval state so since the valley was purchased for 75 lakh rupees from the british government maharaja gulab singh claimed to be the owner of all land including of course uh, everything that existed on the land 
So this, however, did not apply to the Jammu province because Jammu was not a purchased land. It uh, it had already been a principality of Gulab Singh even before he acquired Kashmir Valley. So this arrangement took place in 1846, and only a year later, Gulab Singh. Uh, confiscated a large number of Jagirs which had been granted during the preceding regime uh, that is the, the Sikh regime uh, who had ruled over Kashmir from 1819 till 1846. So a majority of these dispossessed Jagirdars were Muslims. However, I, I must mention that not all of them were Muslims but majority were Muslims. So Gulab Singh uh, did this in order to create a supporting structure for himself you know uh, by giving Jagirs to the people who he thought were loyal to him. So a large number of Jagirs were granted to some influential Punjabi families, uh, some of whom had served under Gulab Singh before 1846, you know, when he was only a feudatory Raja under the Sikhs. So in this whole exercise of dispossessing the existing landlords in Kashmir, he was wholeheartedly supported by the British government. This helped the state in creating a network of local allies in the form of individuals and institutions. So after Gulab Singh came Maharaja Rambir Singh, so he, he placed the idea of a Hindu state on a firm footing. Um, you know, Rambir Singh uh, used land for disempowering Kashmiris in, in a much, um, what we could say, um, effective way than his father could have done. Uh, so he granted numerous Jagirs and Chaks, uh, by Chaks I mean the wastelands, uh, those lands that had not been cultivated so far. So he granted Chaks to Hindus under five different categories. The unique condition uh, that, that entitled someone to these wastelands was that uh, they should remain loyal to the state and to their caste. When among the, the, these five categories, one category was exclusively meant for Hindus. So there was another category of Jagirs that was, uh, that was known as Mia Jagirs. Uh, these were set aside for Rajput families of Jammu. They were uh, like, you know, the kith and kin of the Maharaja. So there was no class of Jagirs, interestingly, you know, uh, there was no class uh, of Jagirs or Chaks which was meant only for the Muslims of Kashmir. So even, even after the British government took a direct control over the administration in 1889, the situation remained the same. It is true that they introduced some modernizing projects in the state, but it's totally wrong to believe or assume that they did that solely for the benefit of the people. They had their own colonial interests, so no doubt. Because if it, it were otherwise, the state would not have witnessed a resistance movement being launched during the 1930s. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Dr. Suhail, why exactly was land the tool to disempower Kashmiris? How was Kashmir freed of it? Uh, that, that's a very interesting question and an important one, really. Uh, look, uh, it's natural that in a predominantly agricultural region, land is the most prized position, right? In, in, in such an economy, people are dependent on land, not only for their food needs or their income, but also for their very existence. Therefore, a control over land and its resources implies a control over the population itself. So, as I said earlier, and I'm sure whosoever uh, knows something about Kashmir history knows that Dogra rulers claimed ownership over all land. So when you don't own something and you're still using it for sustaining yourself and your family, you naturally feel a sense of gratitude for the person who actually owns it, right? So that gives rise to a kind of slave mentality. And medieval monarchs needed people to have that mentality. I mean, how else would they be able to keep them subjugated, right? So the ruler's claim of ownership over land was not 
was simply not a materialistic thing it was more importantly a psychological one i mean uh, since gulab singh had paid money for purchasing the valley obviously he and his successors would have wanted people to see it that way all right that was that was one of the many ways uh, to avoid resistance from the people uh, let me tell you another example here when gulab singh was offered kashmir and allowed to retain jammu and other territories uh, he had conquered thus far so he told the viceroy that he was his zarkhir gulam which means a gold button slave um, he he remained extremely loyal to the british government till his death you know gulab singh died in 1857 and he wholeheartedly supported the british government in crushing the revolt of 1857 he uh, sent uh, you know a, a large force to help bridge uh, succeed in uh, in several uh, battles for example the delhi battle <clears throat> now if if a king could consider himself a slave because of the favor done to him by higher power one can very well imagine the state of mind of those people who were not even consulted when they were being sold and purchased as if they were some commodity right so um, about the next part of the question so kashmir was freed of uh, this uh, this slavery by the application of land reforms as as most of us know uh, for a population that that depended almost entirely on land the land reforms uh, provided an opportunity to be the owners of the means of production unlike before right only a couple of uh, years after the reforms were introduced uh, you know in in 1949 1950 there were some impartial observers who came over to visit the state Uh, these these included people like Daniel Thorner or Tyler Zinkin or Wolf Lejinsky. You know, Daniel Thorner was a British economist, and Tyler Zinkin was a correspondent uh, of the must of the Manchester Guardian. So they claimed that there was a change in peasant mentality. That was a very important thing, um, considering <coughs> how uh, people had been subjugated during the preceding period. so they claimed that the people were much less submissive than they had been under the dogra rule <laughs> on the other hand uh, materially speaking prior to the uh, these reformers prior to when they were introduced the cultivating classes were nearly completely dependent on affluent classes for for agricultural tools for capital for means of improving land productivity and all that stuff however in the post reform period they were not only able to produce their own food uh, on the lands they owned they were also able to save because now they did not have, have to pay exorbitant uh, taxes uh, to the landlords anymore or to the state anymore they were they were able to derive additional income from agricultural and horticultural sectors they were also able to educate their children and invest in business and do things like that so this this was a different situation than 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 was there than existed there formerly now formerly if they needed money for some occasions uh, such as for example a marriage in the family uh, they were compelled to take credit from money lenders and landlords so often they had to you know mortgage the lands they used to cultivate because they didn't have the means necessary for paying the money back right this mortgaged land was often permanently taken by the creditors okay so the 1950s reforms not only waived off those debts but 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 it, they also made provisions to provide them credit uh, without the need to uh, need to give away their lands so that was the kind of change that agrarian reforms brought about so how are the current land laws poised to impact the people what does it mean for the legacy of sheikh abdullah's land reforms 
Uh, see, uh, I grew up hearing that every single Kashmiri family possesses a chunk of land and a roof over their head. And I'm sure others have also grown up, you know, hearing things like this. So on inquiring, uh, you know, later in my life, why, is, why it was so, I, I came to know that it was all because of the land reforms enacted, you know, decades ago. <clears throat> so as I studied the history of our state, I was fascinated by the fact that uh, before the land reform program was implemented, the people of the state were an impoverished, uh, like helpless, dispossessed lot. Uh, but but the reforms introduced by the National Conference government, you know, despite its political blunders, these reforms had upended the situation through a few pieces of legislations. <clears throat> it is true that the reforms enacted during early 1950s and later during 1970s did not establish an absolutely just society. I, I mean, that would be wrong to say. But in comparison to other states of India, they were implemented more democratically and thoroughly. All right. So now, now how the new land laws would impact the people of Kashmir? That that is a tricky question. It's not it's not really easy to predict the exact outcome of these outlaws. Uh, sorry, these laws. But but considering our history as well as the motivations that drives the current regime, it's it's possible to make some broad assumptions. Now, say for instance, I already tried to highlight some of the consequences, uh, some of the possible consequences of the new policy while answering the first question. So, uh, keeping in keeping these things into consideration, some might say that the people of Jammu and Kashmir are acting paranoid. But I say, no, we're not. I think we are thinking rationally. I mean, more rationally than we ever have. Uh, <clears throat> most people are actually seeing through this scheme. So, it is it's kind of a design to modify the substructure to make way for a new form of superstructure. It's, it's like demolishing an old house and, you know, building a new one in its place. That may be fine, but the problem is that the residents of this new house are not the old or the, the original residents, but new ones brought in for a specific purpose. Uh, I think this is the simplest way to explain what settler colonialism is. So, about these laws, uh, I mean, uh, those laws which have been repealed recently. Now, one of these laws was the Land Alienation Act. This was passed during the Dogra period. So, it was aimed at preventing encroachment of agricultural land by landlords or moneylenders or capitalists. Now, when, when agricultural land has been made alienable, it's it's quite possible that this uh, that we would see a resurgence of encroachments. So, uh, rise in land prices is a given. It, it will definitely rise. There is no doubt in that. But on the other hand, we might also see a resurfacing of absentee landlordism. I mean, people from outside might buy up agricultural land and employ laborers to cultivate those lands. But the, these people who would be the owners of these lands would be here. They would be somewhere outside the state or the union territory as it is now. So, uh, I think the a more uh, troubling uh, this uh, this. Uh, uh, clause is uh, the uh, that the military has been empowered to declare certain areas as strategic areas, right? So, despite the uh, decades of human rights violations uh, or the choking of political aspirations of the people, the crushing of dissent and all that, uh, the people of the state had not seen an implementation of such policies before. I mean, the ones that are being put into place now, right? But now it seems that the military has been given unrestricted powers to declare, you know, entire settlements as strategic areas. So, so who is there to stop them? There is no legal safeguard we can turn to. Uh, I mean, under this law, who is to say that a forcible evacuation of settlements may not take place in future? Like, it's it's a blanket policy which may turn into a general rule in future. Okay, so the objective of this whole exercise uh, seems to uh, to be to to lay foundations of a power nexus. 
one which leaves the original domiciles without access to power, let alone allow them a say in this new power equation. So, Dr. Sohil, are we headed to a return of a Dogra era under a new dispension? Uh, honestly speaking, uh, it's like, you know, we are caught in a time loop. Uh, as, a, as a physicist friend of mine would say, uh, it, it kind of feels like we have circled back to a brutal historical past. Uh, you know, a few days back, I was looking at a petition uh, submitted to the British government by some Kashmiris back in 1909. Uh, they were complaining about how Muslims were vastly outnumbered in the administrative machinery and in, in this Muslim-majority state. Uh, so the, the governors of the two provinces, the chief judges, uh, the ministers of the council, even the advisors to the Maharaja and not to speak of the top bureaucracy, all, all were drawn from the minority Hindu community. You many among them were in fact not hereditary residents of the state. So for me, the content was shocking. Not because what it looked like 110 years ago, but how exactly it resembled the situation 110 years later. That means now. So the, when we when we look at the current who is who, the, the, it says it all. You know, it, it is easy to grasp what the situation is. However, uh, there is a big difference, you know, between then and now. Uh, for instance, uh, the Maharaja at that time uh, claimed that he found no Muslims for posts, uh, for those posts, because a vast majority of Muslims were illiterate. To some extent, his claim was valid, you know, because you would uh, come across a very few educated Kashmiri Muslims at that time. But right now, the government can't make make that claim, right? And yet, it has gone ahead with the disempowerment of people of Jammu and Kashmir. Okay. Uh, secondly, <coughs> Dogra kings actually never claimed to be modern rulers. They could not. They did not claim to be flag bearers of democracy, unlike the current dispensation. Okay, In that sense, uh, one would feel like that, that this regime is much more ruthless and regressive than the Dogra regime in many ways. We're simply being you know, deceived in the name of democracy and development, while the audience in the Indian mainland is you know, mesmerized by this rhetoric. And third, the Dogra rulers passed certain laws, uh, you know, from time to time that were generally meant to, to protect the interests of the local population. I mean, they did this despite being autocrats of the highest order, you know. But uh, now, say for instance, the state subject law of 1912 that was amended in 1926 or the Land Alienation Act that I just talked about were all part of that effort. I mean, the effort to at least do something for the local population to benefit them to, to some extent. Uh, but now all these laws have been repealed and non-locals are being systematically injected into every, every, every sphere of life here. That, that speaks a lot about the current regime. So uh, they are like applying fail-safe measures to prevent their project uh, from being sabotaged in future. So it, it's like, you know, uh, we got a buckle up for a roller coaster ride. But the problem is that our harness and the safety belts we are wearing are already worn out. I mean, I think that all of us can pretty much imagine what this ride is going to be like in future. Thanks a lot, Dr. Sahil, and thanks to our listeners for listening to this podcast. You can visit our website. We are an independent media house and you can go to this section called Members. You can join there and help us by supporting us because you're the only people that can keep independent journalism alive.